Thanks so much, everybody, for coming out for this wonderful reading. Uh, it's my great pleasure to be the introducer and the celebrator of the Glass Table Collective, as, as Allison mentioned. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, What Books Press is, our, is the primary uh, function of that collective, our, our biggest activity. And we try to publish uh, several books a year. I, I'm fortunate that I'm one of those authors, and uh, we're looking forward in future years to more books, or if there are authors out there in my audience, keep, keep that in mind. We're looking for new work, and we're looking for work. If you know the What Books Press, you know that we are interested in, um, well, we have a kind of a semi-political dimension in that we are smashing the hegemony of the New York publishing scene. <laughs> so we smash a lot. Uh, we're smashing tonight. You all are helping us smash. So we are kind of doing an end run around some of the typical ways of getting into print. And we have a collective in order to bring ourselves and others into print. And the wonderful results will be obvious, uh, uh, audible to you tonight um, and available for purchase afterwards. Uh, and the kind of stuff that we, we like to print and that we're looking for, more on the uh, philosophical, aesthetic, eschatological level, to borrow one of Chuck's words, is um, we're always interested in, in, well, poetry and fiction is primarily what we do. And we're always interested in uh, the, uh, the interstitial, to borrow Kate's word, the, the hybridized, the, the outside, the uh, challenging, the unusual. Uh, and I think you'll get a good uh, sense of that by listening. To, to tonight's authors. Uh, first, I want to introduce uh, Chuck Rosenthal and Gail Ronsky, the authors of this just hot off the press book called The Shortest Farewells Are the Best. And what this is, is a collection of uh, noir flash fiction. Is that a, a, a reasonable thing to call it? Uh, and the, uh, they'll, they'll, they, I'll, I'll let them explain a little bit more about how this came into, uh, into existence. But it is a sequel, in a sense, of... Uh, uh, their last book, Tomorrow You'll Be One of Us, which was a kind of science fiction poetry. So that gives you some sense of the, the areas that we try to cross-pollinate and interbreed and create new kinds of exciting fiction and poetry. So I'm going to turn it over to them. I'll come up again when they're done and introduce our second, uh, or I should say our third author, uh, and I'll let them tell you a little bit more about uh, The Shortest Farewells Are the Best. So please, let's hear it for Chuck and Gail. Well, thank you, Rod, and thank you to Skylight Books for hosting us. This is fantastic. It's like the best bookstore around, and so we're thrilled to be here. And we're going to read this book. This is our debut reading for The Shortest Farewells Are the Best. And how this book came about was... Kind of on the back of how this book came about. Okay, go ahead. So... Um, <laughs> We started um, staying up uh, and trying to make our minds interesting and then watching uh, sci-fi movies from the 50s and 60s. And we watched about 75 of them and we sat and we wrote down lines from those movies. And then we typed them up, cut them up. We put them in a cow skull, but it got too small. So we put them in a bowl and then we began extracting those lines and uh, 
constructing poems, not at random, but constructing poems. It was our first collaborative effort. Yes. And the good part of it about is we didn't have to fight about anything because none of the lines were ours. <laughs> and I took Gail's guidance because she's a poet and I am not. But we also have our person who did our cover, Gronk, illustrated every one of these poems from these 75 sci-fi movies. And it's a wonderful book, And uh, but consequently, because of all the art, it's, ex- it's expensive. Uh, but... Totally worth I think it. So it's put it at the coffee table. So that would that inspired us when we when we finished this and it had some success. Without a surprise, how many people bought it given how expensive it is. We <laughs> we decided to do the same thing with Noir, but this is not illustrated, and uh, we did fewer of them, some 35, 40s, and 50s. Right. Noir movies, same process. Um, so every line in these flash fictions comes from a noir movie from the 40s or 50s. So if you're a noir... You might recognize three. some of these. Right. We've had people look through this book and say, Oh yeah, that's from that movie. That's from that movie. So, yeah, it was really fun. And they, epithet, epithet, what is it? Ep- it come, epigram. <laughs> epigram, whatever. It doesn't go on a grave. Epigram. The cheaper, <laughs> the crook, the gaudier, the patter, Sam Spade from the Maltese Falcon. I always get all those yeah. F's mixed up. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, these aren't my glasses. Just a second. <laughs> I thought all this time I had my glasses on. So all, all of our, the, the covers uh, for what books are done by Gronk who uh, even is selling uh, wallpaper now. You can get his <laughs> you can get his art on your wall. He's quite an amazing artist. As you might. Yeah, and we're like lucky as heck to have him do our covers. Um, so anyway, we're going to start. All right. This is called Where Are They? Out Digging a Grave? How could I have known that murder could sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Guys like that don't get that way overnight, do they? There's a speed limit in this state. I guess I'm in love with you. Looks like we're closed for the rest of the afternoon. We're doing about ten of these each, but as you see, they're very short. I don't care what your secrets are. You're not connected with the automobile club, are you? (laughs) You look too slick for your own good. I killed him for money, for a woman. Their perfume has the rotten sweetness of corruption. I didn't get the money, and I didn't get the woman. What I didn't know was that she had plans of her own. I sent her a telegram begging her to come home. I don't get your game here. Who do you think I shot? What's the matter? Aren't you going to kiss me? (laughs) Everybody has something to conceal. Down there, you work on one track and live on another. My sleep is so near waking that it's hardly worth the name. You've got a dead man lying at your feet. How did it happen? By the way, what stiff did you get that suit off? You're not very tall, are you? What does the law say about this kind of murder? Suppose I have to wrap you over the knuckles. I'd feel better about it if you'd have a drink with me, but the man with the gun won't let me. 
how much do you remember about last night? <laughs> Isn't it stunning to just pull these things out of these movies and line them up? <laughs> he killed, and he deserved to be killed. Such a lot of guns around town, and so few brains. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. I don't mind a reasonable amount of trouble. I like to see people drink. It was an accident. He pulled the gun. You shudder at the touch of my hands as if they were the hands of death. You could lose teeth talking like that. Do you think it's safe to leave me alone in this delirious state of mind? Now get out of here before I throw my desk at you. <laughs> You're made to order for the rap. Stop talking about Saturday night. Try telling me the facts. We never arrest a man just for knowing where the body was. I like cheap perfume. It don't last long, but it hits harder. <laughs> it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. And I knew what he was going to do. For every move, he threw a shadow. I don't think dancing is such a good idea. Just what is it you're afraid of? I've got two boys outside in the car. Be a good girl and give me another minute. It's only blackmail, baby, when you're dumb enough to get caught. They won't be looking for a brunette. <laughs> Death always comes as a sort of an accident. I like smart women. They've got cat in them. <laughs> How come you're holding out on me, baby? With that kind of figure, you could get any man in the place. I brought you something from Tokyo. Still want to marry me? What's the matter? Think I live under a rock or something? Don't tell me that he's under the sofa, too. <laughs> I don't know anything about women. Suppose you tell me about it from the very beginning. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of wisdom in here, actually, right? Right? Especially the gender stuff. Especially, it's, it's, it's cold. He's done things to me I can't even talk about. <laughs> he was mean when he was drunk. It isn't so easy for a girl drifting around from one job to another. Most women are unhappy. They just pretend they aren't. I was lonely. I couldn't stand my loneliness. It was I you intended to kill, wasn't it? The funny part is it made a great deal of difference. You never knew me. You never bothered to figure me out. Like you said, we better call it quits. You killed my husband, Sam. You couldn't plant enough flowers around here to kill the stench. What was your wife like? <laughs> Actually, we both have published real books. <laughs> about, about 14 or 15 each. Uh, I don't know. Could go on Amazon or something. <laughs> but, but then you have to think up your own stuff. What am I going to... It's always too late. What am I going to do, take back that knife and I put in that guy? The truth is, I'm in a jam. I'm ruined. My whole life. I'm drunk and i got no job. I have a terrible, terrible confession to make. Murder can be a chain, one link leading to another until it encircles your neck. The only type of killing that's safe is when a stranger kills a stranger. No motive. Nothing to link the victim to the executioner. I don't want to get my name in the newspaper. Do you? Everybody makes mistakes. The wrong job, the wrong marriage. Prisons are bulging with prisoners who wonder how they got there. You know what was going on, so don't go, go getting holy on me. <laughs> Lucky girl, living a life of passion and violence. 
The living room was still stuffy from last night's cigars. The drinks, Polynesian pearl divers, and don't spare the rum. I'm going to drink mine and have a sip of yours. That'll be something different for a change. When I found him, he was dead. I didn't know he was hurt bad. I didn't know he was going to die. I wasn't... I won't be sent back to that dime-a-dance joint, not if I can help it. If you killed anyone, I'd feel responsible. You shouldn't fool around with a married woman. It's not a matter of sex, it's a matter of money. If you've been listening, just forget what you heard. Maybe someday I can do you a real favor. <laughs> She's a young girl. You shouldn't let her drink so much. I don't like you. I don't like the way you talk, and I don't like your friends. I wouldn't give two cents for a dame without a temper. That's what I wanted most, I guess. <laughs> Somebody decent. The whole thing's wrong from the beginning. I just can't believe it. You, a killer. I don't know how much you love him, but even prison is better than death. At least you got a nice, clean ambulance. It's, it's more than some of us get. <laughs> My friends call me Kitty. She talks to me just once, and like that, she's dead. Do you look down on all women or just the ones you know? What do these look like? Grapefruit? <laughs> I'm not married. I have no designs on you, and one drink will do it. This is some conversation we're having. Now I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. Give him a drink. You heard me. Give him a drink. I'm glad we're getting close to something. It's much better to have looks than brains, because most men I know can see better than they can think. <laughs> Give him a drink. Is that from Postman? What's the one? Or is that the, what's the one on the, they're on the island? Yeah. Bogart and, uh, yeah. What's your story? I come from a family that does things. I seem to exist largely on heat, like a newborn spider. I was finally getting in with the real boys. You were in one of those moods that keep me awake all night. You can't buck the system, Eddie. You'll never get anywhere in this town not liking thieves. Look it up in the papers. She was murdered last night. Yeah, dead. It was the act of a sick man with an urge to destroy. Sometimes people are where they can't talk, under, under six feet of dirt maybe. The rat fell out of his chair, and we just left him there. I don't know what I was doing in the same room with him. Tell that to your mother. <laughs> you look like a quiet afternoon at the tea house of the rising moon. Do you always go around leaving your fingerprints on a girl's shoulder? Not that I mind particularly. You've got nice strong hands. And then she walked in out of the moonlight smiling. And for months afterwards, corpses were found in the mangrove swamps. <laughs> you give me any trouble and I'll fill you full of lead. I mean, right? No R. <laughs> it's in all the movies. Yes. <laughs> you killed him. That ought to satisfy you. You're no good for anyone but me. Yes, Angel, they're going to send you over. I don't want any part of that cage. Let's get out of this lobster trap and get some salt air. You've been a lot of places, haven't you? Every time I look at the sky, I think of all the places I've never been. I'm kind of sensitive myself. We weren't meant to be happy. I haven't had a good laugh since Johnny was murdered. <laughs> 
No guns, no cops, no trucks. Say, I like this, early nothing. Where have we met? In another guy's dream? I remember he said goodbye. I think he was crying. I'm not used to having my head in the clouds. It was the walk of a dead man. We don't talk about those kind of things around here. Did you watch his face? Maybe this is the face that'll haunt you. Maybe these are the eyes that'll drive you crazy. Every time we get together, there's nothing but trouble. You think I like meeting you like this? If he finds out about us, he'll kill me. What good is money or business to a dead man? Try talking and find out. I was beginning to think you worked in bed like Marcel Proust. <laughs> no more moving. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they said that. <laughs> a man who can't see but hasn't got eyes. You sure you don't see what you hear? You're like a leaf the wind blows from one gutter to another. Well, if it isn't the laundry man himself, looks like a sex crime to me. I'll take that cigarette now. <laughs> I'd do anything to save my husband. Anything. Since he was dead, I was glad of it. <laughs> what was left of the day was like a pack of cigarettes you smoked. It's funny, too, how a kiss stays on, how you can taste it. If he was mean or vicious, I'd have liked him better. I'm not scared, and you know it. You can't do a thing to me, not a thing. You say you loved her in the same breath you say you killed her. You don't love me. You make me homesick for some of the worst years of my life. <laughs> I guess I'm in love with you. <laughs> Nothing ever happens to me, you know that. Nothing in the world is any good unless you can share it. I know lots of Larrys. <laughs> this is hopeless. I only know a couple of Larrys. They're dead. <laughs> I still enjoy the smell of it. I used to sit there half asleep with the beer and the darkness. What to do in a wind of night-blooming jasmine but wait and sweat? Sometimes an ill wind is like a bad memory. Sitting here thinking kind of... Think, sitting here thinking is kind of rough when you spent your life not thinking. You're looking sir had a very dull survival of a very gaudy life it was all in the cards and there was no way of stopping it I also know what I don't want and I don't want to be rushed everything turns cold inside me I don't like the word confession you little phony put pistons in your eyes and keep your voice low nothing's going to happen I swear to you nothing's going to happen the last stop is the cemetery <laughs> true <laughs> you know women, the stubborn sex. Good times, that's what I want. I once kissed a guy and stabbed him in the back at the same time. <laughs> there was something about the big lug I didn't like. <laughs> There's nothing like a love song to give you a good laugh. <laughs> Let's dance. You're my best customer. You want to lay a price on that? What about a nice bottle of wine to celebrate? I guess I'm not much of a woman. I probably looked dumb to you when you slugged me, but I'm not dumb. You like working girls over, don't you? I didn't get married to sleep alone. I found another guy, a real doll. Roulette wheels have a way of running over me. Is it beneath your dignity to ask directions? <laughs>
You came here to my house about a murder? Don't worry, there'll be a payoff. Fog seems to be lifting. Let's go out there and climb a couple mountains. It's practically the middle of the night. What do you do, go on singing songs and drinking Ramos gin fizzes? All, this big em all these big emotions are wonderful, but they just kind of scare me. Lady, there was a time I could have used you. Trouble is, you always know what you want. You gotta leave him sometime, so why not leave him now? <laughs> we'll have dinner tonight, but not together. Maybe if I was a little bit smart, I'd be a little bit lucky. The dumbest thing you did was kill Pete. It was all in the cards. It was fate. You don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, and our last one is a... It's a duet. A duet. Dames, you've heard of them, haven't you? I came down here to ask you to keep my name out of the papers. I never put anything down on paper. I have no feelings for you. I'm annoyed whenever I see you. Is there anything else you didn't tell me? I meant it. I thought you was dead. I'm sorry. I lost my temper. Don't wait up for me. How long should I keep up this uncongenial bar life? How many men can a bullet kill? Is that any of your business? Now I wonder how you don't get into trouble. Would it make any sense if I told you this never happened before? If only we'd met long ago. Go on. Shoot. Shoot. I'm enjoying it already. <laughs> okay, right. that's it. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Buy these. They're really cheap. Thank you. Again, Chuck and Gail. <laughs> All right, next we have uh, Annette Letty. Uh, is going to read from her just published novel, Earth Still. And this is uh, her first novel and the launch of, of this novel in Los Angeles. And we're very pleased at Woodbook Express to be the publishers of it. Uh, Annette is not a member of the Glass Table Collective. Um, but those of us who, who were kind of in on uh, the writing of this, of this amazing novel uh, long ago, we, I, I'm one of the lucky ones who saw early drafts of this. Um, I think we just knew right away. This is the kind of thing that we want to publish. This fits so well into our, our publishing mentality, our publishing agenda. It's, uh, it relates to science fiction and yet is not science fiction. It appropriates in a postmodern way from the classic um, science fiction film of the 1950s, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and borrows uh, certain plot elements and certain characters from that, but in such a sly, satiric, postmodern way that relates much more to what's happening in U.S. culture today uh, in, a, in, uh, in just a, a very sly and delightful and appropriational way. So uh, it's, it's just... Uh, a real special pleasure for me to introduce Annette. I've known her a long time, and I'm just so happy to be the one to, to bring her up here to, to read for you. Come on up, Annette Letty. Um, <clears throat> well, I'd like to thank uh, Skylight Books for sponsoring this reading. And I'd like to thank uh, What Books for publishing the book, and um, especially Chuck Rosenthal, who uh, went far beyond the call of duty when the New York launch was a little bit dicey. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that. 
And um, I'd also like to just thank everyone for coming. And I've known so many of you for a long time. And um, now that I live in New York, I don't see people very much, but I really miss my LA friends. <clears throat> so I'm going to read the first chapter of this book, but I want to give a little bit of background about the book's genesis. Uh, first of all, it began a, a few years ago when I watched the, the Day the Earth Stood Still, the 1951 version that I'm sure you've all seen. And for some, and I think I had seen it before, but somehow this particular time, you know, it just sort of it really struck me. It really sunk deeply inside. And I kept thinking about it. And I, um, I went and read the 1940 short story that it's based on. And then I... And the verso of the DVD, there were the interviews with all the actors and the producer and writer, and um, I watched those. And um, somehow between the short story and the movie, and the movie and the story of the making of the movie, this novel uh, began to grow. And um, in some ways, that's you'll see that this is um, obvious. For example, the characters in the novel have the names of the actors in the movie. So Patricia is, you know, Patricia Neal and so on. But there are other ways um, that, that these sources appear. Um, in the interview with Patricia Neal, she, she says that... Um, when she read the screenplay, she just thought it was hysterically funny. And when the problem she had is that uh, every time someone would say the words Klaatu Barada Niktir, she would burst into hysterical laughter. And they'd have to cut the filming and do the scene over. And she said she found this to be like, you know, that the, the people had so much patience with her because she was just so completely out of control. And when you see the movie, she's very solemn. She's very serious and but now when I watch it I always imagine this hysterical laughter inside her so this also appears in the novel and in the short story it, what happens is that a spaceship lands in Washington near the capital and uh, and there is a, uh, a spaceman inside who appears to be dead or sleeping or something. And so they build a museum around the spaceship, and it become it's like part of the Smithsonian or something. You know, it, it's people go to visit this. So that also appears in a certain form in this um, book, in that the the main character is a museum curator. And then, of course, my life began to intersect with the movie. I used to walk my dog in Rancho Park, and I read that the filming of The Day the Earth Stood Still was done on the back lot. The Washington Mall scenes are like the back lot of uh, what's now Century City, actually. But it was, and also I even read that the Rancho Park itself was was the scene of the. So I felt like I was kind of intersecting with the geography of the film as I walked my dog. And then, of course, I was working at a museum that has, is a very science fiction-inflected kind of monument. And um, then, as the story began to grow, I just, you know, I began to watch other science fiction films and to read more about art and science fiction. And so, basically, my sources for the book uh, grew well beyond the initial film that inspired it. So, I'm going to read the first chapter... Week 1, Chapter 1, 
Saturday. Patricia liked the formless feeling of a Saturday. There was nothing she had to do right then, but a number of things she could do when she felt like it. Walk their dog Jack, feed the plants, pay some bills. For now it was pleasant to be sitting with her son Billy at the kitchen table, drinking coffee and eating grapefruit, cereal, and cinnamon toast. She opened her tablet and studied the front page of the Los Angeles Times, which was observing the two-week anniversary of the arrival of a spaceship on Earth. There was a photograph of a light in the sky and an arrow pointing to it labeled Spaceship. (laughs) She thought how it looked like the cover of so many supermarket tabloids she'd seen over the years. A spaceship had really landed. Initially, she'd been as terrified as everyone else, but now it made her feel like laughing, perhaps especially because no being of any kind had emerged from the ship. Shortly after landing near Century City, its doors had opened once, then closed and ceased to exist as doors. Military personnel, having arrived in black shiny helicopters, had already deployed a robot to investigate the ship but the robot had failed to seize the moment and enter the darkness the open door disclosed. No instrument could detect any sign of life within, nor could any tool create access to the interior, and a full cast of reporters and experts from Los Angeles, the whole nation and the world, had since then been endlessly engaged in speculation as to whether or not an invisible alien had landed among us. The Times had run the same photos in various combinations since the landing, and for the two-week anniversary was presenting the full panoply as a slideshow, as if to futilely declare, we have no news but the same news. Patricia gazed at a photo of the shiny blue disk, cleverly photographed with the office towers visible in the background, and thought again what a good sight the aliens had chosen a grassy clearing in Rancho Park, which was adjacent to a giant movie studio and shopping mall and business center built in the 1960s to look like the future, with silver buildings that gleamed in the Los Angeles sunlight, including a hotel that curved inward where presidents stayed when they came to town, and a bank of fountains that sprayed vertical lines of water at random intervals, one line, then 10, then three. Mom, will they blow us all up with a big bomb? Billy asked this question often, and the photos that he saw her looking at again elicited panic. She looked in his face suffused with fear, and he reminded her of a cat, suddenly attuned to sounds of a predator. His white freckled ears, his reddish hair, his translucent eyelids all seemed a little more perked up than usual. No, no, sweetheart, she said. I don't think so. If they were going to do that, they would have done it immediately before we could even grasp what was happening. How do you know that, he asked. I don't know it. I just feel it, she said, trying to communicate a sense of security to him and in doing so persuading herself. I think it's important not to give in to fear right now. After all, our world could be on the brink of a wonderful adventure. Those people on TV last night, they were crying. 
I know, but they've been crying for two weeks now. If they weren't crying about this, they'd be crying about something else. I think we should follow the advice of the governor and assume everything is okay until something bad happens. Though he may be a bitter enemy, he may also be a newfound friend. Remember when he said that last night on TV? Billy was silent for a moment, taking in what she said, biting into a piece of cinnamon toast. He was an eight-year-old boy, just on the cusp of the change, the first move away from her, not the big move of adolescence, and not even the more measured assertion of pre-adolescence, but the moment when he was just turning toward that future, seeing it looming in the distance like a mirage. The landing of a spaceship overwhelmed him with all the fantasies and dreams of a childhood half-past and the concerns of the complex reality he was opening toward. Where did he go, he asked, a tone of wonder replacing fear. The spaceman, you mean? Yes. If there is one, he or they could be anywhere, anywhere in L.A. or the country or the world, or nowhere. He'd want to be near his ship, he asserted. Maybe so. She could see his thoughts shifting from imagining an alien to imagining himself as alien, certainly an improvement and one she wished more people would make. In the past days, the hysteria level had been truly off the charts, she thought, scrolling through the newspaper that documented in garish color the faces of people hearing the news for the first time. Just watching them in a photo from two weeks ago was a bit fear-inducing, causing a thin stream of panic to shoot through her. So she closed the article and returned to her kitchen, observing Billy chewing his toast. He took the tablet from her and reopened the feature to a photo of the spaceship, then gazed out the window into their leafy front yard. They lived in a street named Military, which ran parallel to Veteran, which had its source at the military hospital. But there was nothing military about the street's appearance here, a row of small cottages on a gentle hill, each home quite different from the others, reflecting the architectural preferences of the decade in which they were constructed, and then the remodeling tastes of a series of tenants or owners. The feel was eclectic, a little haphazard. Mom, read it to me, he said, pointing to the column of text under the picture. So she did, with the odd sensation of reading him a bedtime story that had suddenly come true, a little too true. It was thrilling to hear herself speak the description of the flash in the sky and the slow materializing of the ship that was a brilliant metallic blue disc, quietly landing in one of North America's busiest cities. And how had that happened? How had it eluded all radar and weapons? And who was the pilot? The tone of the newspaper in posing these questions was grim, even a bit humiliated, for they were no closer to finding answers than they had been two weeks ago. When she finished reading, Billy had a relaxed and faintly deranged smile on his face. To be so emotionally vulnerable, so lifted up by life's excitement, would mean to be at risk of heartbreak or even breakdown, wouldn't it? Surely not all children were like this. Surely this was an unusual quality, one to be cherished and protected, but also one he'd have to learn to protect himself from. 
How could she help him learn this, she wondered anxiously. Well, it's an unfolding story, isn't it, she said to him. Mom, can we go see it? He kept asking this, and she kept having to explain. It's completely barricaded, so no one can go in the park or anywhere near there. And the people who lived around there can't even go home, remember? What about the people who work in Century City? They're not going to work for a while. It would make it harder for the military to do its job, whatever that might be. Will we ever get to go there again? It was one of his favorite places. He especially liked the toy store there and eating at an outdoor table after they had shopped. When he was a baby, she had pushed him through Century City in his stroller, and she still remembered the time when he was wearing a white terry onesie with blue boats on it, and she had sat on a bench with his little body resting against her chest, and how lovely that had been, just breathing together. Well, someday, she said. Maybe the spaceship will just stay there and be empty and people will be able to go inside it. Like a museum, she added, getting up and carrying the dishes to the sink, imagining the alien craft enclosed in a white cube-like building with a foyer at the entrance and an information and ticket desk. The Century City Flying Saucer Museum, it would be called. A good place to take kids after Macy's. They would need curators like her there, and she pictured herself looking through files of clippings from the Los Angeles Times. Then she nudged the story to her mind's periphery. She needed to make a call to Hugh, she remembered. Were they on for tonight or not? They were supposed to go to a movie, but since the landing, movies had seemed so extraneous. What could be more entertaining than an alien invasion? Of course, Hugh might not feel that way tonight. She dialed his number, heard his voice say her name, felt the welcome feeling of having a man after so many years without one. No, he didn't want to see the movie either, except maybe Alphaville, which happened to be playing at the New Art. She laughed. We couldn't take Billy to that. He hates subtitles. Oh, but I'd like to have some time alone together. Maybe a nice dinner instead of a movie. Okay, I'll see what I can arrange. Billy had drifted into the living room and was watching television, a beautiful shot of the blue disc gleaming in the morning sun, but unchanging minute after minute while newscasters repeated the same information over and over, waiting for the story to begin. Numerous images from science fiction movies and books, never quite forgotten, ran like an interminable preview of coming attractions in the back of her mind. In science fiction history, the range of possible motives for alien invasion included, apart from the total annihilation of Earth, brainwashing or otherwise robbing Earthlings of individuality, intelligence, or autonomy. Then there were harvesting plots, where aliens would steal humans in order to mate with them and strengthen their stock. And there were those where they had come to warn Earth, and those where Earth was just an idea in the mind of an unknowable alien. She found herself in a familiar story and reflecting on that story at the same time, a predicament that felt not entirely new. 
From the time she was a prepubescent girl, she had wanted to be in a book, finding her own life dull compared to the lives in mysteries, thrillers, and science fiction. In early adolescence, film had become a better escape, and in late adolescence, she had turned to art, where the story was more embedded. (coughs) Billy, she said, feeling the urge to get out of her head, let's take Jack for a walk. He shook his head. Come on, Billy. There's nothing happening with the spaceship right now. Let's go out in the fresh air and check in with the news when we get back. He started putting on his shoes, conveniently left beside the television the night before. She opened the back door and called to Jack, a happy retriever mix who came running up, thrilled to be getting the same walk he had every day. She clipped on his leash, called to Billy again, and they set off down the sidewalk. They had lived here for seven years, having moved in when Billy was one, the year his father died. When the reality of her husband's death sank in, Patricia had sold their house in a more luxurious neighborhood and moved here, where they could live on her salary without undue financial pressure, among ex-hippies and refugees, people trying to either lose or find a place in America. They had come to know the neighbors as they walked up and down the street when Billy was a toddler. Gradually, he'd identified playmates, and she'd met their parents. When they got Jack, they'd met the dog owners. Now they had ties and bonds running all through the houses on their block, though her closest friend, Chris Mark, she had met at work. She often felt she lived in two separate worlds, the rarefied museum one and the lower middle-class neighborhood, like two separate folders in the computer that was her mind, and when one was open, the other wasn't, but the spaceship had been messing with that. She felt the work folder opening as she walked along the street, or was it the coincidence of what she was working on, which was Italian futurism? It had always been a perplexing moment in art history since it was an early 20th century avant-garde movement allied to reactionary politics. Even the first phase with its brilliant innovations in visual poetry and paintings that portrayed speed lost a bit of its shine in the light of the second phase, which she was researching now, when futurism was for a time the official art of the fascist party. The art certainly grew less complex during this phase and had an especially odd style of work called airplane painting. And that's what kept coming to mind now, the drawings and sculptures and designs of planes, rockets and machine men, robots in the futurist collections she'd been poring over. This material had acquired since the landing a prophetic aspect Though there was no evidence of any kind of alien yet, robot or not, a thought that brought her back into the moment of walking down the street on a lovely day with Billy and Jack, something that gave her a feeling of such contentment that she wondered if walking in another neighborhood, which marrying Hugh would involve, would make her as happy. Maybe it will make you happier, she told herself. But the issue was that her family wouldn't be just herself, Billy, and Jack. It would be holding another person in the group that most defined her. There had always been among them a shadow, Philip's ghost, a present absence, and that's what would be vanquished or replaced by Hugh. A picture came into her mind of a translucent, nearly invisible Philip, erased and filled up with the solid form of Hugh, like tomato juice poured into a tinted blue glass. 
Look, Mom, Billy exclaimed, pointing, new people moving into Carla's house. Carla had been Billy's friend when he was four and five and six, but after that the breach had come between them as between girls and boys of a certain age, so Billy couldn't say he was sad she'd moved away. Yet he was, and the feelings had gone deeply underground, or so Patricia understood now as he gazed, heartbroken, at the man carrying boxes from his car trunk into the house. Doesn't he have any furniture? Billy asked. Often that comes later, in a moving van, or sometimes before, she replied, watching the man, exceptionally tall and slender, carrying the boxes as if they contained nothing but air. Shall we go say hello, she asked. Billy slipped his hand in hers in assent, and they crossed the street diagonally with Jack leading the way, then stood waiting, a group of three, by the open trunk in the driveway. The man emerged from the house and approached them, and she greeted him, introducing herself and Billy. He shook Billy's hand, looking in his face and offering a deference that seemed specific to children. Then he turned to Jack, looked him right in the eye, and patted his head, causing Jack to look pleased and assume the expression she always construed as a smile. Finally, he looked at her, his hazel eyes bright and observant, and she had the feeling of having always known him. I am Rennie, he said. Though he didn't exactly have an accent, there was something foreign about him. Perhaps he was Slavic or of another Eastern European ethnicity. Where are you from, Rennie? From Russia, he said. She nodded, wondering how his English got to be so good, so nearly free of any apparent strain in pronunciation. We live in that house, she said, pointing, the pink one. Are there others in your family, he asked politely. No, she replied, I'm a widow. He nodded sympathetically, but with a gleam in his eye that she guessed was happiness that she was free, although she really wasn't. The ruthlessness of his being glad her husband was dead might have angered her or turned her away from another man but didn't work that way with Rennie because of her prior feeling of having always known him, because of the unusual ease in being with him. Come inside, he said to them, taking up the cues that they were about to resume their walk and leave him to his moving chores. But she saw that he didn't want them to go. So they went inside where the house looked empty, a 1920s wooden bungalow with a few built-ins, a few curves and niches, and narrow stairs leading to one light-filled bedroom. The wooden floors and walls, clean and exposed, felt worn and thin, like a shell or a squirrel's home in the hollow of a tree, old and sound. When is your furniture coming? Billy asked. I have no furniture. Why not? Billy asked, as if this were a terrible shame or misfortune. I sold it all before I moved, he said, so I can start over. How nice, Patricia said, realizing she'd like to do that, start with nothing and acquire one thing at a time, only things she liked. One accumulated so much furniture and so many objects over the course of a lifetime, and so few of those remained meaningful, it seemed to her. Only certain things would give her pain to do without. The earrings Philip had given her, 
her mother's self-portrait, the copy of Podcane of Mars she'd read as a girl. Otherwise, they could haul it all away and she would breathe more freely. Billy wouldn't like that, though. He'd be miserable. Even the sight of this other man's empty house was making him feel sad, she realized, as she watched him opening and closing the drawers of a built-in dining room cabinet. But perhaps he's looking for traces of Carla, she thought, something to remember her by. If only Patricia had known he still loved Carla. If only she'd thought to bring him by to say goodbye to the family so he could see her one last time, though he'd never have come if she'd made that the reason for going. And now Carla was gone, leaving nothing to remember her by. Even a dog has mementos, she reflected. A few years ago, two small children had lived next door to them. They adored Jack, and nearly every day came by to pet him reverently and play fetch with a little black and white ball. When the children moved away, they left the ball for Jack, who would lie on the ground, holding it in his mouth for long stretches of time, or sleeping next to it. Jack was pacing now back and forth in the hollow-sounding living room, wanting his walk, and Billy had given up finding mementos and instead was apparently reimagining scenes from his past with Carla. Patricia knew that about that. She'd spent a fair amount of time in that practice, retrieving memories of her time with Philip, which was one reason she was sad they'd had to move from the house where they'd been together, because it was like losing the landscape of their love. But also it was better, had made it easier to relinquish that love to the past. Since then, for seven long years, Billy had held all her love, and only when he was beginning the turn away did she find herself lonely, feeling the need for someone to bond with. Almost as soon as she had had that feeling, about a year ago, Hugh appeared. Hugh, who loved her emphatically and believed Patricia was everything his mother had never been. Rennie brought another box in and watched them curiously as they were configured in his living room, and she saw how to him they must seem each in his or her own thought universe, and yet in relation to one another like a family. Rennie opened the box and pulled out an object made of tin, a pointed cone with what looked like antennae attached to the tip. What's that thing? Billy asked. A souvenir. Rennie said simply. We all have them, Patricia said, smiling. It looks like a prize you won in a carnival. He smiled back at her. We'll be going now. Jack needs his walk. I'm glad we're neighbors, he said. Me too, she said, taking Billy's hand and Jack's leash, and then found herself saying, Would you like to come over for dinner tonight? I'd like that, he replied, with an awkward and pleased smile. <clears throat> that went into her like a sliver of light. Patricia and Billy and Jack continued on their walk, and Patricia was dazed. She felt like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz trying not to fall asleep in a field of poppies. Gradually, the surprising warm feeling subsided, and then she remembered about Hugh and their plan to see a movie or have dinner. She would have to call and change it. She felt a twinge of guilt now and hoped he wouldn't mind. A little dinner party with Hugh and Billy and their new neighbor would be much nicer, and she'd invite her best friend and colleague, Chris, who was always up for meeting new people. 
Is he coming over for dinner? Billy asked. Yes, you heard me invite him. Is that okay with you? Do you like him? Well, I wish he had some furniture. (laughs) I'm sure he'll get some. Where is he going to sleep? I don't know. He probably has a sleeping bag and a little pad. Like camping in his house. Yes, like that, said Patricia, smiling at his grumpy face. I've lived like that. You did? Yes, for a little while, when I was a student, before I met your dad. I didn't have a bed, but then a neighbor was moving and left me hers. I have good memories of the time before the bed. Being in an empty room, I wasn't sad at all. It was peaceful. Billy shook his head. He didn't like it when she showed this side of herself, the side that predated motherhood and wasn't commonsensical but a little quirky. It undermined his sense of security, which was never very strong, she reflected, perhaps because his father had died when he was young. But she didn't think it was that or that alone. It was something innate, but not from his father. His father had loved change and challenge and danger. So she didn't go on, but couldn't help pondering it as they came to the bottom of the hill their street was on and turned to go around the corner where the two disturbed dogs lay in wait behind their fence for a person or animal to terrorize with their barking. She braced herself for their assault and saw Jack start to take on his stealth walk. For a silent moment, it seemed like they might make it past the dog's yard, but no. Their ears were ever alert for the tiniest evidence of passers-by, and they ran to the fence and barked violently, as if saying in the most vicious way imaginable that if they could get their jaws around any part of them, they'd tear them to pieces with joy, (laughs) since (coughs) they lived only for pleasure and destruction. Jack woofed a couple of times just to show he wasn't scared, though she thought he was, but not like he used to be. When he was a puppy, he'd bark back at them, then run back and forth along the fence, mirroring the two dogs, acting vicious and insane, caught up in contagious hatred. (laughs) But (coughs) once they passed... As now, he felt he left all that behind and was once more the gentle, self-possessed animal they knew. What had made those dogs like that? They walked on, Billy now bouncing a ball he'd had in his pocket and Jack prancing a bit, walking in front, being the leader. And she imagined how she'd present the change in plans to Hugh so as not to ruffle his feathers. I wonder if you'd mind a little dinner party at home. And she'd offered to make his favorite dinner, barbecued lamb with ratatouille. That's it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.